Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Welcome to the first season of the War on Cancer podcast. This is the podcast where we aim to learn more about life with cancer, both during and after treatment, as loved ones, and how it affects us all. My name is Sebastian, and together with Fabian, my best friend, survivor, and co-founder of War on Cancer, we will be inviting experts and professionals and covering topics that are relevant for everyone that has been or is affected today. Our ambition is to shed a new light on the many aspects of cancer, and we hope that you will enjoy learning together with us. Fabian, what are your thoughts on diet and uh, nutrition? Mm, I feel like a hypocrite. I know that I am a hypocrite because I've been on numerous different diets. And it's not because I've been on different diets because everybody's entitled to try different things. But I know that I've really boasted about the different diets that I've been on being sort of the right and only path of way forward, which is why I'm a hypocrite. Yeah. So I think I've been on, I mean, alkaline diets, LCHF, meat only, and then vegan, vegetarian, and then also fasting on top of this. So 16-8 fasting and then 24 hours fasting. And yeah, you know, a, a hypocrite. Yeah. yeah. But um, I remember one time in London when you were on an oatmeal diet for like three weeks, and this was just prior to you being diagnosed. Yeah, perhaps that's why I got cancer, because I had only oatmeal. <laughs> no, I was working in the field of acting and some modeling back then. And of course, it was always good to be slim. So I focused on a low calorie diet more than anything else. Yeah. But another interesting question. So have you combined different diets? I think mm. that's <laughs> that's something that a lot of people do. They go on a diet because they want to lose weight or because they want to feel better or healthier or fitter. But then they're getting drawn in different directions. So instead of just going in one direction, they go in multiple directions at once. I know I wouldn't say <laughs> I'm I'm quite disciplined in that sense. Like when I take on something, I, I try and do it for the for the time that I'm doing it. And then but I sometimes I've been quick to change. But then again, on a more serious note, I do believe that the diet can affect the way you feel when you go through cancer. And I mean, I have experimented a lot, but I have overall tried to focus on eating healthily, meaning avoiding junk food, avoiding refined sugar and these type of things. And I don't have anything to compare with, 
but I have felt quite strong and energetic throughout my years of going through cancer. Yeah. And if you were to describe the diet that I'm on or that I've been on for the past five years in one word, what would it be? For the past five years, <laughs> <laughs> you are, you always boast about your balanced diets. So I would say balanced with a touch of sugar, a sugar like overload intake. Yeah, that, that's about right. <laughs> no, I think you have a great diet. You are conscious and I guess it comes with working with something like cancer as well. Yeah, it's grown into a better diet now, but I mean, I have a weak spot for sugar, especially chocolate. Yeah, yeah, and uh, bulle, canel bulle, yeah, yeah, cinnamon bun, cinnamon buns. That's my favorite, <laughs> to be honest. That's what I always. If if you put a cinnamon bun in front of me, in two minutes it's gone, one hundred percent. But a good thing is that we're actually having a guest today, which can tell me more about my diet and hopefully about your diets, my multiple different diets. Yes. Also excited to understand more about supplements. And uh, whether that can have a positive impact. Yeah, and I'm interested about alkaline diet because, to be honest, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> so, without further ado, shall we get down to business? Let's get down to business. So, a warm welcome to you, Melissa, to uh, this episode of the War on Cancer podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for this. We are as well. <laughs> so, can you f first briefly explain who is Melissa Moger? So I am Melissa Mogor. I'm a public health advisor at the World Cancer Research Fund. I was previously a public health engagement manager and I work specifically within survivorship and prevention of cancer. So I work mainly with cancer survivors, people living with cancer and health professionals. Fantastic. And what's your background? Like, how did you get into this space and into your current role? Actually, after I um, qualified as a nutritionist after uni, I worked with um, the NHS, but I worked specifically with diabetes and hypertension. But especially diabetes, trying to create healthy diets for people living with diabetes and trying to um, just encourage a healthier lifestyle. I was working with a dietitian then as supporting her. And then after that, I worked within childhood obesity. So I started working with families, trying to encourage healthier behaviours to help their children maintain a healthy weight. And then I personally was diagnosed with something called lymphedema, which is something that a lot of people have after they've been diagnosed with cancer. And then that, when I started researching into my own lymphedema, so then I realized, oh my God, it's linked with cancer. Then I started researching into cancer. And then that's what really ignited that fire for me working in cancer. And then I started working with WCRF just over two years ago. And I've been here ever since. Fantastic. And for our listeners that doesn't know, so the NHS is, is the UK healthcare system, basically. So as a nutritionist or a dietitian within the NHS, what is your role and how do you engage with patients? Because I would imagine that this differs quite a lot depending on which country you're in. Absolutely. So all of the recommendations we provide are based on the national guidelines for the UK and the research that's all related to the UK and the food standards and the foods available to the UK and even a lot of the cultural foods that we come across is all based around what's available in the UK. So being from somewhere else, it would be more catered towards your cultural norms and your national guidelines for your area as well. As a nutritionist, it's much different to a dietitian. A dietitian specifically can prescribe you with a certain type of diet and show you how to make it and how to implement it into your lifestyle and can go out shopping with you. Whilst a nutritionist kind of just provides you with advice. We can't say to you that you need to have this for this to happen. But me working with a dietitian, she would usually say that 
and then I would just follow up with whether the person is able to actually realistically implement those changes and ways they can get those changes out there. A lot of it was about public health as well. So irrespective of just that specific patient, I did a lot of general health promotion towards anyone affected by diabetes and hypertension. So that was what I did with the NHS. Um, a lot of it was just following up with the patients and seeing if they're comfortable with the changes that have been made and how they can modify it to suit their day-to-day -day norms and their lifestyles. And then I moved on to working with overweight children. You mentioned survivorship. Yeah. What does that mean? So survivorship, when we discuss it with the WCRF, it's just about anyone who's been diagnosed with cancer and beyond. So if you are in remission, but you are still currently experiencing these side effects associated with cancer, then you would still be within our survivorship bracket. Right. Would you say that advice on survivorship varies or differ a lot from advice on preventative sort of measures? Yes, absolutely. Because um, with survivorship, there's not so much research in the field. And that's especially because each cancer case is so unique to the person. So two people can have the exact same type of cancer, diagnose at the exact same time, be the exact same age and ethnic background, but be responding completely different to the cancer and to the treatment for the cancer. So there's not so much information because of that. And as well as that, um, it's quite hard to test people living with cancer. I mean, ethically, it may, it may be unsafe as there's such a high risk group to start adding and subtracting things whilst living with cancer because, I mean, it could be a big cost. It could be very detrimental to your life, even though it, it could improve your um, chance of survival. But on the other end of the spectrum, it could actually make things a lot worse. So for that reason, it's hard to test in that group of people. So before yeah. anyone does test with anyone living with cancer, you have to make sure what you're testing is completely safe and it's not going to compromise chances of survival in any way, shape or form, which is why it's so hard to like actually come up with concrete recommendations for survivorship. Whereas for prevention, we have actual concrete recommendations that we can promote and disseminate to make sure that, you know, the public health is at the forefront and people are actually doing these things to prevent the onset of cancer. I would like to, to ask you another question about working for the NHS before moving on. And I mean, obviously, people working at the NHS now, as well as other within other healthcare systems around the world, they're obviously experiencing a very special situation right now. So it would be interesting to hear a little bit more about your why. How did you come to work for the NHS? And was that a childhood dream or how did that come about? Well, the NHS is something that, I mean, if you are born and raised in England, it's something that you grow up with. You go to hospital checks all the time. I mean, you know, you're born, on, well, I was born under the NHS system. So it's something that's always been a household name. So I'd say um, when I decided to work for them was more solely, not necessarily a dream, but it was a great opportunity that when it presented itself, it was like a no-brainer. I'm definitely going to try and see if this is something that I could effectively do and how it runs. And um, yeah, I mean, it was a dream working there. I really enjoyed it. They really do look after their staff and um, especially the frontline staff as well. There are so many other initiatives in place to make sure that the staff is happy before the whole coronavirus outbreak. There was a lot of like people striking to get, you know, more pay for NHS staff, which is totally yeah. understandable. But at the same time, there are other measures in place that I believed when I worked there were also a great way to make sure you live, you're working in a place that's, you know, you're comfortable to work with and that encourages your own personal well-being. So, yeah, I was really happy to work there, to be honest. It's nice to come up to see different patients and from different backgrounds and all with different stories as well. Working in other types of industries, you might attract a certain type of person from a certain socioeconomic background. Or if you work in sports, you may just be working with athletes. But with the NHS, 
you can get a range of people from pensioners to athletes to pregnant ladies to just you know anyone really and anyone from all around the globe so um that was really interesting for me because it really taught me about the way nutrition differs from different cultural backgrounds and different ages and you know so I think that was what was really what my take home message was from the NHS it showed me such a variety of people and such a variety of lifestyles that is very nice to hear and let us tell you that we have the utmost respect for uh, everyone around the world working within a healthcare system mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really sort of the backbone of society and we have all come to realize it now during this uh, corona pandemic yeah. so thank you very much for your service no so uh, and then you moved on from the nhs to the wcrf so can you tell us a little bit more about the wcrf and what that actually stands for Sure. So WCRF stands for World Cancer Research Fund. So um, I work for the UK branch and it's a prevention and survivorship charity. And uh, we specifically fund the research in the links between diet and exercise and physical activity and how this can actually help to lower the risk of cancer. And if you have been, been diagnosed with cancer, increase the risk of survivorship and help you live more comfortably with cancer and also lower the risk of reoccurrence. So that's what we mainly focus on. And my specific area is health information and we work to empower people to live healthier lives and we use behavior change and we use the information we receive from our research and science teams and we create these health tools and health initiatives to help people incorporate healthier lifestyles via behavior change and using the information we get from our science department and translating it into more digestible information for the general public so they can actually implement it into their day-to-day lives. That is very interesting. So basically with us today, we have a nutritional expert that has worked for the NHS, is now working for the leading sort of charity that focuses on preventative measures and uh, nutrition and how that can be used to improve treatment outcomes, I would say, of cancer patients. Is that a correct way to describe it and you? Yes, so it is somewhat correct. So most of our research into survivorship is about uh, preventing reoccurrence of cancer and also helping people who have been diagnosed with cancer to live well during cancer. So to help provide advice to help them to manage the side effects that's associated with cancer and cancer treatment. And, you know, the, the whole reason for this episode really stems from one question that uh, occurred five years ago when Fabian was diagnosed and asked his doctors, is there anything I should focus on eating in terms of diet or nutrition in order to boost my immune system and um, improve my chances of surviving? And the answer he got was, eat whatever makes you happy. Why was he given that kind of answer? It's completely understandable. To be honest, here as well, most health professionals working in oncology, unless you are a specific oncology dietitian, do often tell the cancer patients to eat whatever you like. And it's because when you are living with cancer, you do tend to experience such changes in your eating habits and your eating desires and what you can actually digest and absorb. So because there's such changes, a lot of patients tend to either not want to eat what they what they had before and when they do eat what they had before they're not getting as much nutrition from it so as a result of that they may not want to have that anymore they may just fall out of love with food altogether because your taste changed so much 
you may not actually want what you usually had. So that's why they tell you to eat whatever you want at that time. The goal is mainly to just get as much nutrition in you as possible and to get as much calories in you in you as possible because that will help to get you through treatment. That's why we came up with one of our booklets called Eat Well During Cancer because a lot of people living with cancer do feel uncomfortable with just eating anything and eating burgers every day and having milkshakes at midnight and stuff. But we do have some information as to how to eat healthy whilst living with cancer to help maintain the side effects that these health professionals are trying to prevent such as weight loss or diarrhea and constipation so i think that's the main reason they're just trying to get any nutrition in you by all means so if you can't have your healthy salad and roasted grilled chicken anymore and you all you want to have is biscuits and burgers and that's all you can get down then of course it's good for you to have that because any nutrition is better than no nutrition whatsoever and that's what will carry you through the cancer treatment which is so strenuous on the body I understand where you're coming from, and we've heard that specific answer in the past from other doctors uh, when they say that we know that a lot of patients are struggling to eat anything whatsoever. That's why we tell them to just eat whatever makes them happy. On the book you mentioned about eating healthy during cancer, I think that is something that a lot of our listeners would like to hear more about because, of course, we have listeners that are currently in treatment. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to provide perhaps the major guidelines from that book? Absolutely. So the book was created with the British Dietetics Association. So all of the recipes in the book have been cross-checked and they have just to guarantee that the recipes are specifically for anyone living with cancer and specifically to manage certain types of side effects. So the goal of the book really is to help manage side effects. As I mentioned earlier, we don't have any specific recommendations for anyone living with cancer, but we do have some tailored advice to help you manage the side effects associated with cancer in a healthy way. So it does focus on things like weight loss, which is often associated with cancer, sometimes weight gain, diarrhea and constipation, mouth problems. And it does touch a little bit about exercise as well. So a lot of it is just everyday techniques that we can all implement into our lifestyle. We often do promote giving it to health professionals. So if you are in a situation where someone's been advised to just eat whatever they want, but they still want to eat healthy, but the health professional doesn't know exactly what they should be eating, they can just refer them to this book or give them the book in a physical copy and it does have um, certain tips like rather than having a whole bunch of fries and unhealthy foods you can just make a healthy smoothie add some fortified milk powder in there to increase the calories as well as increase other nutritious elements to prevent weight gain as well as give you some added nutrition as well and we found that a lot of our people living with cancer have responded to it really greatly because they're much more comfortable having some healthy nutrition that will also help them manage the side effects rather than being told to just eat anything whenever and and wherever. So Melissa, essentially, just for my understanding and hopefully the listeners as well. So when the doctors told Fabian to eat whatever would make him happy, they're essentially focusing Mm -hmm. on or they're trying to do whatever they can in order for Fabian to get the caloric intake that his body needs to function during this very stressful, I guess, physical time. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just about normal bodily function. It's more solely about you need to have as much energy to get you through the treatment. And also you need to get as much energy as possible because whilst you are living with cancer, the body's not as efficient as it usually is. So the nutrients you're taking in will be a fraction of what you normally would take in before you had cancer. So if you are eating five oranges, you might get the nutrient from half an orange. So they're trying to encourage you to have as much as possible to get as many nutrients as you can. And then as well as to get as many calories to prevent things like weight loss and to give you enough energy to get you through the treatment. So there are quite a few stages as to why they've said to you, eat whatever, whenever. And even as history shows of people living with cancer, 
weight loss is such a massive thing so that's what a lot of the health professionals are trying to prevent the more muscle mass you have before you have your treatment and the more healthy you are before you go for treatment the better you do respond to treatment so that's what they're trying to just you know make sure you have enough going on to get you through the treatment and get you through the cancer itself as well What we're after here in the podcast is really for people going through cancer to try and find ways of eating better or in order for them to be able to increase their chances of surviving as well as and of course from mm. from talking to you here we're understanding that i mean there's not that much research on that topic but perhaps uh, we could begin or we could focus more on sort of your work with regards to preventive diet. So just in terms of that, it's just more solely for prevention of cancer. We promote having a varied diet, uh, making your diet mainly fruits and vegetables and pulses and whole grains and having red meat no more than three times a week and just keeping your diet as varied as possible, trying to get five a day. And the same goes for survivorship. So we also promote you having a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables and pulses and having red meat every now and again and having your protein from healthy sources. However, the reason for it is a lot different. So with regards to survivorship, we recommend you doing that specifically to get you through cancer treatment and get you through cancer itself. We also recommend doing added things. So like rather than recommending a smoothie to help you get some nutrients in, we'd recommend you having a smoothie to help you gain weight and to help you with your mouth problems or your swallowing issues or chewing issues. So something like a smoothie that's higher in calories, that's been made of yogurt and has, you know, more bananas in it and more milk would help you to maintain weight healthier in regards to for prevention we recommend it just to help you get like more of your fiber day in so it's more so it's very much similar but the reason behind it is Uh a little bit different and for survivorship we wouldn't stress more on um weight management whereas for prevention we stress a lot on being a healthy weight and maintaining a healthy weight and with regards to everything that yeah. we've discussed so far, obviously every cancer patient or somebody under treatment is a, is a very different individual. I mean, I do understand guidelines, but can the same guidelines be applied to everyone or can it differ because of different diagnosis, different situations in life, different ages, etc.? What would you say? So I'd say that you can have some overall um, advice that will be useful irrespective of the cancer you are living with. But then with going deeper into that advice, it does depend on the cancer you've been affected by and the person themselves. So that's why it's so hard with survivorship, because even though you may be living with breast cancer or any other type of cancer and five of you may experience certain types of side effects, the rest of them may not experience it. So we can't come up with a concrete. This is what you should do if you have breast cancer, because it's so varied from person to person. But what we can say is things like staying hydrated, eating extra fruits and vegetables, even just monitoring what you are eating and when you are eating it and how much you're eating it all those things help for cancer across the board so that way you can kind of like track how much nutrition you're getting in and whether your side effects are improving and whether the advice you're taking is actually working for you and that can be applied across the board for all types of cancers so basically logging your diet could be a valuable tool in understanding what could work for you absolutely so what could work for you and at what stage so the way you're feeling at the beginning of your cancer journey may differ completely to the way you feel towards the end and then you 
can even judge by the way you feel on certain types of treatment and the way you feel on chemotherapy versus radiotherapy. And it's really useful for your health professionals as well. So they know, okay, so this must be a result of this treatment because before you did treatment, you were eating X amount of food and now you're really struggling to get down certain types of food. And it's also good for yourself as well in understanding your body. And then if you know that whenever you go through a session of treatment, you tend to eat a lot less, you can always have that in the forefront and work towards that. So when you are going to go for treatment, you know that, okay, I need to make a conscious effort to eat a lot more because usually I eat a lot less and I make different types of choices so I can't swallow as well or, you know. Right. Uh, Melissa, since you are an obvious expert in the field of (laughs) diet and nutrition, and I feel almost like a hypocrite in a way because throughout the past couple of years, I have been on quite a few different diets. It would be wonderful to have a discussion around different sort of diets, basically. And, And from my personal I remember starting out when I first was diagnosed with an LCHF diet, moving on to a vegetarian diet, trying out a fully plant-based diet, at one point trying out an alkaline diet, and then a red meat-only diet. Now I've sort of ended up in some some form of predominant plant-based diet with every now and then I I take in animal protein. And also, of course, sugar is in there as well, the, the endless debate about whether you can or cannot eat sugar. You've heard me name sort of four or five different diets now. Which one do you hear the most about? And if any, would you advise? Hmm. Start by saying thank you for referring to me as an expert, but um, (laughs) you're far too kind. And it's very normal as well. Human beings, I mean, we're creatures of change and we are at the same time creatures of habit. And for some reason, a habit tends to be changing our diet quite often. And that's fine because as we go through life, we learn more and more research comes out and then we try to do what's trending at the time or what someone else got great results by. You tend to like think, oh, I'm going to try that. Maybe I'll get great results too. So that's quite normal. I think that's something that we all need to understand as well, that people are going to diet and some of it's going to be good, some of it's going to be bad, but it's going to happen. In regards to diets themselves, we just mainly just say having a healthy lifestyle is key. So a varied health lifestyle is key. But of course, you did name quite a few diets and there are quite a few that we have come across. The alkaline is one that I will start by. So it is a diet that is relatively not so new, but it has come about, I'd say it hasn't been around for up to 40 years anyway. And it is something that I do get asked questions about quite regularly, just especially with the cancer community. And the goal of it is try to try and get your blood pH alkaline state, which is about 7.3 to 7.4 around that area and by doing that it's alkaline based foods so with regards to that that is actually a myth that we do not advise so when i say we don't advise it it is with caution because as a human being you can do whatever makes you feel good if you are doing an alkaline diet and you're thriving on that by all means continue doing that but always listen to what your body needs but with that being said by changing the foods you eat is not necessarily going to change your blood pH level, if you know what I mean. So um, we naturally go through homeostasis and digestion to make sure that our blood pH stays at alkaline state, which is between 7.3 and 7.4. And if you can do that, it will be very dangerous for us. So specifically, we've been created to make sure that we can't do that. So yeah, so if your blood pH does change quite drastically, it's a very serious health condition that you need to speak to a doctor about probably get some treatment for it as well so it's not something you can actually change by moderating the way you eat but metabolically we we adapt it and regulate it anyway so it's nothing that you should be worried about but I will say 
that with alkaline diet, it does promote alkaline-based foods, which are plant-based foods anyway. So if somebody is having an alkaline diet and they're struggling with it, I would always recommend for them to, you know, you can have some foods that have been uh, labeled as acidic every now and again, because it's not really going to change your blood pH. And if you are having an alkaline diet, then you are having a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Would you be able to give a couple of uh, just examples of acidic versus alkaline uh, foods for the listeners? Sure. So alkaline type foods would be things like uh, fruits and vegetables, like apples, bananas, berries and cherries. So that just anything that's like plant based kale, aubergines, mushrooms, some nuts as well, like almonds. Dairy milk is also alkaline type food. Yeah. So just oranges, strawberries, asparagus, those types of foods. And then the acid type foods would be meats and like processed breads and stuff like that. So breads, meats mayonnaise some fruits and vegetables can be acidic too things like bacon beef cheese chicken eggs fish so like a lot of like animal based products then you have the neutral foods as well so things like coffee i believe either falls into acidic or neutral it depends so from what i've heard would you argue that an alkaline diet and the purpose of being on an alkaline diet is perhaps uh, a myth Yes, I would definitely say it is a myth. It doesn't make a difference with the food you make to to alter your blood pH. So you cannot alter your blood pH by food. So it is unfortunately a myth for all the alkaliners out there. But then again, and there are so many. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Myths when it comes to nutrition and diet, and not only for people undergoing treatment or having survived cancer, but basically for all people that have an internet connection, right? Absolutely. And one of the most commonly discussed myths, or not, I don't know, is obviously sugar. And sugar is really something that everybody within the cancer community discusses. And you have sort of two camps pro sugar which is often the profession, and then the patients that often refer to sugar as something bad. Can you describe how sugar either feeds or doesn't feed cancer, and if it's a myth or not? Okay, so this is a bit of a sticky area. Does sugar feed cancer? So sugar doesn't actually feed cancer, to be honest, but I'm going to just break it down a little bit 
more for you so you can understand it a bit clearer so sugar can refer to different types of foods so sugar doesn't just apply to the amount of sugar you put in your coffee or your tea or biscuits and cakes and sweets and stuff sugar can also refer to complex carbohydrates like potatoes and whole grains and some vegetables and fruits as well like peas and beans so that breaks down to our body as sugar which we refer to as glucose and we need this glucose for energy overall our brain functions solely on glucose so if we aren't having sugar our body will actually create sugar for us and that's from a process called gluconeogenesis so we do actually need sugar it's all about getting the healthy sugars in you so that you're having some added benefits such as the fiber and the vitamins and minerals associated with it now in terms of sugar feeding cancer itself sugar directly doesn't feed cancer alone so i'd say cancer does need energy to thrive but cancer also needs fat and protein as well so there's no way you can cut any of your macronutrients to cut the cancer so if you do stop having sugar it's not going to have an effect on whether your cancer progresses or doesn't progress but if you do make healthier choices such as you know getting more healthy nutrition into your body that will make a difference and getting healthy nutrition into your body does include having some foods that will break down as glucose so I have to refer to everything that we have said before as well because obviously there are people uh, out there claim that you can starve your tumor to death basically it's poorly explained but that you can starve your tumor but that would essentially mean starving yourself as well if that would ever work yeah so probably not not something that we're gonna advise no exactly no we don't advise just starving yourself to starve your tumor thing and it's not something that has actually been researched to be effective i mean when you are going through severe weight loss during your cancer treatment we try to get you to gain as much weight as possible so you can go through the treatment so that already contradicts the fact that you should starve to starve the tumor what about the lchf diets so the low carb high fat diet yeah because if there would be one diet that could potentially quote unquote starve the tumor i guess it would be the lchf diets mm. that again though the tumor doesn't thrive just on carbs it so it would thrive yeah. on fat and protein so it won't necessarily starve the tumor it's just you'll be just functioning on a lower level of glucose and if that does happen you still it will have glucose in your body because you will still go through gluconeogenesis because your liver will still produce the glucose anyway so um it's just about having a balance really don't really focus too much on having so much sugar in your diet and don't focus on having none whatsoever and just focus on getting your um glucose from healthier sources such as complex carbohydrates rather than getting it from just simple sugars if you know what i mean how does that differ so we're talking here about i guess refined sugar is the sugar that is bad for you that you find if you go and buy candy sweets and stuff yeah. like that versus why are they different and and how should a person think about the two so try to think about um, having a clean diet is what I always say. If you are somebody who is even on um, low carb and high fat diets, I'd try to say if you are trying to start adding more carbs to your diet and you want to do it in a healthy way, try to go for clean carbs. If you're struggling with processed foods, go for things like uh, sweet potato and potato and you're going to have other added vitamins and minerals into that and you're going to have fiber as well. Whereas um, complex carbs come with other nutritional benefits simple and refined carbs tend to not have much nutritional benefits to it anyway so that's why we always recommend having complex carbs over simple carbs and that does include things like whole grains and like vegetables as well so that all goes within the complex carb bracket and that will help you with your overall health and even if you are living with cancer and concerned about sugar those types of sugar sources quote unquote will help you with um, your recovery and 
getting you into a situation of being in remission. Just an add-on question on on LCHF. I know there's a branch of LCHF people that that call themselves or try and apply a ketogenic diet, which is, I guess, the absolute extreme of LCHF, where you completely cut out almost all carbs. Yes, and you function off on the ketones from your fat, I believe. So that, again, is another diet. We don't promote that diet because it's, it's a high-fat diet. And with these diets, it's so easy for you to get your numbers wrong and end up just having so much fat and actually gaining so much fat and having high cholesterol and other issues associated with it that diet as well has been there are some studies that say it's been effective for certain types of conditions cancer is not one of them that we've researched into and the research for it hasn't been as intensive and hasn't been as reliable for us to say that it's something that can help i mean i have seen it help with certain behavioral type issues i've seen it help with weight loss and weight management but it's not something that we believe is sustainable and it's not something that we believe is something that you could do as a lifestyle like indefinitely and implement as an overall lifestyle and that's what we tend to promote having variation so it's something you can implement as an overall lifestyle change rather than just having a short-term diet or diet that you're going to be doing until summertime so yeah so that's the our take on it and we just try to promote variation and just of course mainly having whole grains fruits vegetables beans and pulses as a major part of your diet but also having other types of foods as well and that does include having a treat every now and again which could be a refined sugar-based product it's all about having that variation So we understand that variation is something incredibly important, but we still need to dive into some myths and concepts about nutrition. And another concept that we see a lot of people discussing both online and when we meet uh, people under and after treatment is inflammatory foods and inflammation in the body. What does that even mean? And is it a concept that people should be aware of? Yes, absolutely. I think it's something that we should all be aware of because the more we know about our body and how our body responds to anything, especially food, the more we can understand when we get diagnosed with things and we can understand what treatments are actually doing to us. And in terms of inflammation, there are two types of inflammation. So there's acute inflammation, which is what you get from just like an injury. So if you hurt your leg and your leg becomes inflamed. But when we talk about food, we're mainly referring to chronic low-level inflammation so that's something that you get which is based on the amount of adipose tissue you're carrying so when you are carrying excess or when you are overweight or obese you tend to have um, a chronic low-level inflammatory response and um, that is stimulated by the body fat you're carrying and this is a mechanism that's linked to cancer development and progression so when people do refer to anti-inflammatory inflammatory diet, the belief is that having such foods that prevent inflammation can eventually lead to, you know, curing cancer or preventing cancer because it can lead to a lower inflammatory response. But eating non-inflammatory foods, is that something you would recommend? And if so, could you suggest some foods that would sort of fall into this category? So that's again similar to the alkaline diet so non-inflammatory foods again tend to be foods that are fruits and vegetables and inflammatory foods tend to be foods that are like processed breads and meats and things like that so it's not something we 
recommend because changing the types of food you eat wouldn't really have an effect directly on chronic low-level inflammation. However, yeah. those types of foods can potentially help you to lose weight and reduce your body fat, which in turn can help you lower the level of your inflammatory response. Very interesting, yeah. Yeah, So, but you can always exercise and you can always, you know, make some healthy lifestyle changes to lower the level, your weight loss, and then that will lower the level of inflammatory response you're experiencing. That's very interesting. I like that. And we're just quickly going to move over to the next question, which is soy and soybeans. That's something that is heavily discussed as well. I think Fabian has told me uh, once that it's bad for you and once that it's good for me. So what would you <laughs> let me know? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it both? It's such a yeah. great question. Um, well, soy, again, is something that does come up quite often in the cancer community. So the reason being is because the makeup of the soy itself, so something in it is called isoflavones, and it's a natural plant compound, and it's a derivative of soy foods. And the isoflavones have a very similar chemical structure to estrogen. And estrogen is a hormone that has been linked to hormone-related cancers like breast cancer. So the thought yeah. was if you have a lot of soy products, therefore a lot of isoflavones, it, it will affect you the same way as having high levels of estrogen in your body, which can obviously cause cancer. Which is the hormone that you get a lot of if you're pregnant, for example. Exactly. And you also get a lot of estrogen if you do carry excess body weight as well. So that okay. also can directly affect the levels of estrogen in your body. So, um, but the difference is the way the isoflavones um, react in your body is very different to the way estrogens react in your body. And the way they bind to estrogen receptors is completely different as well. So that has since been debunked as well. So soy products do not react into, into your body the same way estrogen does. So you can go ahead and have soy-based foods and incorporate it into your diet and you can use it to help you you know get more plant-based foods in your diet and there will be no effect on your body whatsoever so that is basically it's a debunked myth absolutely and that that's really good to know because that's really good to know because that's a question i get asked and i think you too fabian uh, about soybeans and we have had vivid discussions about this but now we've heard from an expert that it's debunked so and thank you for that yeah and there's a rumor going on as well that soybeans decrease or help reduce your testosterone which uh, i guess make a lot of males a bit afraid of, of eating it <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm not sure if it can actually reduce your testosterone it might do but if it does it wouldn't be a significant amount to you know get rid of all your muscle mass and you know, yeah. But you know. So, so, so just to just to summarize, because we've discussed a lot of the myths and the nutritional facts. So sugar in excess is not good for you. And uh, perhaps most importantly, don't eat refined sugar. But sugar is something very it's critical for you to to thrive and essentially to live. Correct? Absolutely. And when we say sugar, we mean the byproduct of yeah. carbohydrates. So complex carbohydrates do break down into your body as glucose aka sugar and that is good for you exactly so without even eating sort of refined sugar we will basically produce sugar in our bodies that is needed to in order to live absolutely fantastic and inflammatory foods that's a concept that people should be aware of correct i'm not necessarily you should be aware of i mean you should be aware of inflammation in your body in general so just in terms of the way your body responds to having excess weights and being obese so by being yeah. obese or overweight you are going to have higher inflammatory responses in your body so you're going to have a high level of inflammation due to being overweight and being obese but by eating food there is no direct link between certain types of food reducing chronic low-level inflammation response in your body Okay. An alkaline diet, that basically doesn't make any sense. Because as long as you sort of eat a varied uh, nutritional intake, you will basically 
almost be on an alkaline diet, right? Absolutely. So even if you don't have a very nutritional intake, we do recommend, of course, that you do have a very nutritional intake. But if you don't, your blood pH will still be regulated to be at alkaline level. So we naturally go through homeostasis to keep us at alkaline level. So I wouldn't worry about eating specific foods to maintain a certain blood pH because we do that anyway in built in the program. Very good. And I'm <laughs> going to have soybeans for lunch because that's totally fine. And I like that. But then we also need to sort of highlight again that people undergoing treatment, they need a lot of energy for their bodies to work. So people under treatment should eat a lot of food and get the caloric intake that they actually need. Yes, absolutely. So if you are going through cancer treatment, do try to still have a varied diet, but do be... Um monitor exactly what it is that you're struggling with so not everybody will struggle with weight loss or even certain nutrient absorption might not be a problem for everyone but you may have other types of problems like constipation or diarrhea so just try to understand what is the issue you're going with at the moment and work towards that so if you are experiencing higher levels of constipation have more fiber in your diet and drink more water and if you are having high levels of diarrhea there are things that you can do for that as well yeah. And I mean, eating a lot. So basically a bacon milkshake could make sense for somebody <laughs> undergoing treatment, right? If you are undergoing uh, treatment and all you can get down is a bacon milkshake, then go ahead and have that bacon milkshake. But yeah. don't think that that's all you're going to be having throughout your whole treatment and after you're done with the treatment. So do try to include some other foods in there every now and again. And if you can have other foods, then try to like wean yourself off the bacon milkshake. And then eventually you'll be having a varied diet in no time. Very good. I think that's a lot of very relevant information for all of our listeners. It's a lot of fun debunking myths and listening to an expert because a lot of my ideas has been sort of turned after this conversation. Mm. I mean, it's something that we get all the time. So I also work for an oncology specialist and we always discuss the myths that we get. But a lot of them are reoccurring. And with the internet being out there and so much confounding information out there, it's good to know what you can actually rely on and what actually does make sense and usually if it's a quick fix or if it's a you know miracle product or you know it usually is not really the truth and as long as we all get into the habit of finding reliable sources and trying to understand exactly how it works yeah and this is obviously one of the key questions here where do you get reliable information because all of these questions gets asked several hundreds of thousands of times every single day around the world but people still have or receive different answers so where should you go to find reliable facts regarding these issues or questions so do come over to our website wcrf.org and we could always provide you with as much information as you need feel free to ask us questions as well get in touch with us if you have any specific concerns we're always happy to provide you with some reliable information and also say also contact your health professional and your cancer specialist nurse so if you are struggling with something we need some extra information they'd be a great people to also speak to as well if you have your national government websites as well they'd also provide you some good information too so there is some great sources out there but if you are unsure feel free to contact us and we can lead you in the right direction Yeah, and we would highly recommend WCRF as a source for information about nutrition as well. So go to wcrf.org in order to find out more about nutrition because that's a a good source, uh, plain and simple. Absolutely. So, Melissa, I would like to ask you uh, a final question just to put a more human touch to this whole episode. Sure. So if you were in a situation where one of your 
close family members or friends was newly diagnosed and you had the opportunity to having a call with them for five minutes and that was the only sort of connection you could make throughout their journey. What would you recommend from a personal perspective and from your perspective as a professional in this space? This is a really interesting question and um, this might surprise you what I say because it's not really related to nutrition or diet but I would recommend that they stay positive and I'd reassure them with the fact that we are growing a lot in terms of survivorship and cancer diagnosis and people are now surviving cancer more than they are you know dying from cancer so a lot of the time when you are first diagnosed with cancer or a loved one is the first thing you think is oh my god this is so scary but as long as people have a positive mindset that's when they'd be more open to actually making changes and they're more receptive to getting their health back on track whilst they are living with cancer and thinking about their life after cancer as well rather than being so stuck on the fact that they've been diagnosed and trying to wonder why it's happened and where it came from so I'd say stay positive and stay open to all suggestions and just know that we've come so far from where we were 10, 20, 15 years ago. And that now most people that are diagnosed with cancer will survive cancer. So hopefully you'd be one of those people. So that's the main advice I'd give to people. I love to hear that. And it makes my heart smile. Whenever we talk about positive mindsets, we're all about that here at War on Cancer. Absolutely. I could tell. Yeah. I have a question sort of on that topic. So, I mean, WCRF, you focus predominantly on exercise, diet, and weight from a preventative research point of view. Do you have a plan to perhaps include mental health? The background here is I often read about sort of stress could have a potentially negative impact on your physical health. I'm sure Mm. it's pretty early days when it comes to that form of research. But what are your thoughts, if you have any, uh, quickly? on that topic? I mean, stress can have a negative impact on everything. And even in terms of what we, where we stand, stress can, ha- can negatively impact you by making you make unhealthy choices, which in turn could lead to you having extra weight and being obese and then eventually getting cancer as a result of it. So even if it's not directly linked, it does directly link, if you know what I mean. So it yeah. does, you know, alter your behavior. And even, even irrespective of health, it does you know, have detrimental effects on you in every single aspect of your life. In terms of us and mental health and well-being, we do have certain bits where we might branch out and, you know, speak about things like behaviour change and like the best time for someone to make behaviour changes and what could actually impact people's behaviour change. And stress does come under one of them. But in terms of it being a primary area of research, it'd be um, quite different. So in WCRF, we have got like a policy team, a science team and a health information team. Things to do with behavior change, which does cover things like stress, will come under health information. But things to do with like research and like actually carrying out research and making changes will more solely fall with policy because it could be linked with things to do with socioeconomic background and things like availability to and access to health services, which would all lead to our policy department, which could also be somewhat linked with mental health and well-being. So that will may lean towards that area. But you never know in the future. But I mean, mental health and well-being is definitely something that does affect every aspect of life. So hopefully in the next, you never know, 10, 15 years, it's something that we could actually invest more money in. You never know what the future holds. For right now, we mainly focus on the direct links with diet, weight, um, exercise and cancer. And we do have sub brackets of mental health and well-being. But we, it's not a core area of research for us at the moment. But I'm sure we're open to it. Yeah, <laughs> got it. <laughs>
Melissa, we're going to sort of do a little sidetrack here and record what I mentioned, the what would you rather sort of game. Okay. So I'm going to start. So Melissa, what would you rather experience a complete loss of the sense of smell for 20 years mm -hmm. or have all food smell like garbage for the next five years? Oh my God. I think I'll do, <laughs> I think I'll do the garbage. I think I'll you, do the you garbage. go with garbage for five years. Yeah. What is your thought process? Oh man, I mean, most of the stuff that I eat is because I smell it first and I'm like, yeah, that smells good. That should be in my yeah. body. And 20 years without that is a lot. And if I did do the five years without with the garbage smell, that's fine because after five years I can eat everything. And within the five years, I can literally eat all the kale that I absolutely hate that I need. Because exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you can eat all the good food that you don't necessarily eat when you have smell. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's no temptation. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a, that's a very good answer, yeah. to be honest. So now over to Fabian. Right. For me, I'm not going to talk about a food-related question, okay. but rather about, because you mentioned survivorship. So, you know the TV series Survivor? No, I don't. Is that not what it's called in the UK? Like when, when they put people on an island? Oh, and they... yeah. We have one called I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here. All right. So, okay. What would you rather do? Either be on that TV show every year for the rest of your life, mm. or actually be put somewhere for real on an island and having to do the real experience once. Ooh, every year for the rest of my life is quite a long time. How long am I on this island? In the ladder? Yeah. Uh, well, until you make it back. And how long am I on the island if I'm on the show? <laughs> Probably about two or three uh, weeks per year. I'll do the show. The show, yeah. You yep. would become a real celebrity then. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> my only issue is my swimming isn't great, so I don't know if I can survive the, um, being on it for real. Let's, uh, let's try to get Melissa on the Survivor or Get Me Out of Here shows uh, <laughs> yeah. after airing this podcast. <laughs> that would be nice to see. Exactly. Okay, Melissa, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I've learned a lot. I think Fabian absolutely has learned a lot as well, and our listeners, hopefully. Food is obviously something that is incredibly important, and the nutrition, basically, we consist of the nutrition that we digest, basically. Yeah. So we need to think about that. And obviously, important to mention here as well, consult your doctor. Yes, absolutely. Because everybody is an individual and something might not suit you, even though it says so in a book. So thank you very much, Melissa. And we hope to speak with you soon again. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This has been so fun. And if you have any questions, do feel free to get in contact. And I would love to be back on the show whenever you need me. Would love to have you. Thank you very much. Okay, cheers. Bye. Bye. That was a very interesting episode, uh, I have to say. I'm really happy that we debunked so many myths. I am as well. Really informative. And also, it's, it goes without saying that the wisdom of our mothers, which always says you got to stay balanced, yeah. is actually true. Yeah, and I'm happy that balance was a pretty consistent part of the answers we received from Melissa. So I think balance... And obviously fruits and uh, plant-based is always good. Yes, yes, lean towards that. Yeah, I have to say I'm looking forward to a time and age when we can get more personalized advice, individual advice based on my situation and who I am right now, what I should actually eat. And I think that goes for all of our listeners as well. Yeah, I've heard you can do different things such as analyzing your blood, 
to understand which form of uh, diets work better for you and, and not. So I think there are things happening in that space, but I think we have a long way to go. Yeah. And with that said, I'm going to look over my diet and I think it's safe to say that everybody should every now and then. Yes. Next week, we're going to release episode five uh, when we invite our dear colleague Lisen Arnheim Dahlström. She's the head of real world evidence and health studies at Warren Cancer. We'll be covering uh, quite an interesting topic, namely cancer research and how patient insights and the participation and engagement of people under and after treatment can help us better understand cancer, improve cancer care, and spearhead cancer research. So I think it's a very interesting episode that we have up and coming. So do I. Cool, see you next week. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.